So yes, we begin in, we're going to begin with Luke chapter 2, Luke. verse 21, that's on page 1482. Well, it changed from boo to Luke. He yeah, and yeah, when he got bad, they started to boo him. And so, we just got off the account where the shepherds came and... Praise the Lord for his. Uh, no, I don't think we're in that. No, not in this. Not in Luke. I think it's in Matthew. So we're actually to the circumcision of Christ now. So in verse twenty-one, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given the by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you remember when John the Baptist was circumcised, it was right on at his circumcision is when they named him as well. When they had when Zacharias was mute and he got unmuted and he says his name is John. So it appears that it's not a commandment in Scripture for the for the child the male child to be named. It's just it was a custom or tradition for at their circumcision they would be named. But of course he was his name was told to them what they were going to call him. Um, by the angel, told him that his name would be Jesus, that he would save his people from their sins. And so that's what they named him. All right. So he was circumcised. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem. Where, to, where are you at? Verse 22 now. 22. And when the days for the their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, that takes us to, well, first off, back to the commandment of circumcision. We'll review that real quick. That's, that's from Genesis 17, 12, that every male, this is given to Israel, every male among you who is eight days old shall be, this is Genesis 17, 12, shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in your house or who is brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So that's, of course, the commandment to Abraham to Why circumcise. Did they think that was... Circumcision was a sign. Well, I was commanded, but I think, it's a, I think the sign represents cleansing. It was a cleansing ritual. And so okay. you know, in the New Testament, circumcision is referred to in the sense of... It's always, you know, when, when you're called the circumcised, that's Israel, the Jews, and the uncircumcision... Of the, it's more of a you know, unclean thing, so it's a, it's a purity thing and an unclean thing, circumcision and uncircumcision, and then also, and so when we're when the Bible refers to us in the New Testament, when that we don't have the circumcision made by hands, which was this, we have the circumcision of the heart that the Holy Spirit does, and so it's the cleansing of the heart when the Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells. So I think the main point of circumcision is. To, you need to be cleansed from your sins. And so, but it was commanded to Israel back then. And so that's, of course, why they did 
why they uh, circumcised Jesus there. I forgot to cover that. Then this section of being, of being, uh, when the days of the purification according to the law of Moses were completed, that refers back to Leviticus 12, where it says, commandment. Again, they're living under the old covenant at this time. New covenant got ratified at the death of Christ. So he hadn't been born, or well, he's born, he's a baby now. And so they're still under the old covenant, which, um, then the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 12, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, which is what we have here, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. We're just talking about the eighth day you're circumcised. And then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. And then it goes on to explain whether if she has a female child, it's a little bit longer. And then... Verse 6, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of a meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So as referring to those two quotations there. And this is still in Leviticus 12. Uh, then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Well, she when the law, the Levitical law back then, was that after you had birth, you were unclean for a certain amount of days, and. You got to understand with the, the, the Levitical laws, and a lot of people who attack the scriptures go attack the Levitical law because there are, were a whole lot of laws that they they were required to keep, and these are these are commands, and they mostly they represent you know in a sense a they're a shadow or a type of uncleanliness because you can see where when she's making the offerings it's a burnt offering and a sin offering, and so she's making atonement for her. So it was another representation that you needed to be atoned for. But there was a certain uncleanliness. After birth, that you weren't, you were not allowed to go into the sanctuary into other places until you had been, until you had done the purification. There were a lot of laws about sanitation, like if you had a boil, if it had hair in it, then it was a bad boil. Maybe you had to go before the priest and let them look at it. There were a lot of these very specific, detailed laws, and I think primarily that when you're dealing with these things, that God, you have to remember, God dwelt with with them. He was, his glory was in the tabernacle. And so he actually, at that point in time, dwelt among them in, in a sense. Not like he dwelt, dwells among us now, like he indwells each person, but his glory was manifest there. So he was present at that time in a way that he wasn't present. And so I think the, the cleanliness rules and all those things were intensified. because There's a lot of put-to-death stuff, too. That you do something like you'd be put to death, and it's, you're required and if you didn't do it, you were put to death. And so the message of Scripture always is God takes sin very seriously. And so we can sit here and say, well, that seems, you know, that seems obsessive or, you know, excessive. But we first we understand he, he's the one who makes the rules. 
And so what he says is right, not what we think. But you also understand, again, that he dwelt with Israel at this point in time in a way that was very, very personal and close, and it upped the ante to all the things. But everybody was given very clear commands, and and uh, you know, so if somebody broke this, they had to willfully break these things. Where did these commands come from? God himself. I mean, they would. Well, he spoke to. It says in the verse one up there in first verse of chapter twelve, the Lord spoke to Moses. So he'd he'd speak to Moses. Moses would speak to the people. Okay. Speak to the sons of Israel. So yes, there's a whole lot of unclean and clean things going on in Leviticus. That of course we don't have to follow these anymore. But the overall message is, like I said, the, the pointing out the sinfulness of human beings and the need for a sin offering and the uncleanliness of certain things and and like leprosy and those things. You're if you walked around, you had leprosy. You had to shout "unclean, unclean" to anybody who walks by. And again, leprosy is another form that you can kind of type that over in the New Testament to sin, to uncleanliness. You know, God would sometimes strike people with leprosy. Who were proud and arrogant, and and so it was. It was also a punishment, but it's all all of it reflects in a lot of way. I think you can sum a lot of this up as God is that we are very sinful, and we have no idea how sinful we are. And so sometimes when you have these specific rules and things, you can point you to that and make you focus on that. And God is holier than we think. We are more sinful than we think, and God is holier than we think. But again, this is all revoked now that we don't have to do any of these these were all old testament things but i, th- I think when i studied leviticus a little bit and i hadn't studied a lot of people kind of they always laugh and say you know when you start the new year you say i'm gonna read through the bible and they make it through genesis they make it through exodus and yeah. they hit leviticus it's like flat tire time because there are a lot of tedious things and and you do you guys end up saying okay i don't try and you can go into detail and study these things and you can get more out of it than you'd think just on the observation observa- just on the over the top of it but here that's i was just trying to point out where this came from these commandments came from but yes i think primarily you're talking about shadow types of sinfulness and god's holiness when did they stop being in effect uh i think yeah for at the new testament or i'm sorry the ratification of the new covenant when christ breathes his last that was when the veil was torn all the temple sacrifices anything old covenant civil or ceremonial was immediately abolished when, was that? when jesus died oh, okay. he took his last breath okay. the veil was torn supernaturally there was an earthquake and all kinds of things went on and i think there there's the abolishment of the old covenant and the ratification of the new covenant the things that carry over are the moral laws of god things that would be um you know, like uh, the Ten Commandments and the things like that, where you know, just because those those laws were given to Israel in the Old Covenant, like "Thou shalt not kill," it didn't mean that the New Covenant you can all of a sudden start killing people. So you had three kinds of laws there: you had civil laws for Israel, ceremonial laws for Israel, and then you had moral laws that you could apply to anybody. Laws of the heart, and those obviously carry over. What does covenant mean? Agree, agreement. Promise. Promise. Sorry. All right. Keep asking the questions. Those are good. So when the New Testament Testament starts. New Covenant. That's the New Covenant. Yes. Well, no. So the New Testament is a, is a recording of... The New Testament was written, every, every word of it was written, after the New Covenant had already been ratified. The New Covenant was ratified 
which is from Jeremiah 31. The new covenant is mentioned and in, in, in predict or prophesied in Jeremiah 31 when Jesus died and took his last. He ratified it. I mean, before when they were in the upper room, he said, "You know, take this. This is the the his death. He will the the blood. This is his blood. All the covenants in the Bible were ratified with blood. The old covenant was ratified with blood, sprinkling on the people at the at Mount Sinai, and so it was all ratified with blood. And of course, the new covenant, the greater covenant, the final covenant was ratified with Christ's blood, his death. So when he breathed his last and died, not only when it was it was before he was." resurrected and dead in dead for t- till Sunday he was the new covenant had been ratified when he took his last when breath officially the, new start. the new covenant began then they started writing and recording the scriptures oh I don't know what the earliest time the was new testament doesn't need the new covenant. no the new testament is the is recording no the new covenant was written about in the old old testament Jeremiah 31 talks about I will make with Israel a new covenant and so that was, yeah, so you got to, the covenants are different than the Testament. Now, in general, yes, the New Testament is about the New Covenant, the, the fulfillment of the New Covenant. But the New Covenant was first predicted in Jeremiah 31 about in the Old Testament. All right, yeah, so there's the difference. The New Testament is the, is the books that we have that were inspired after, and they, and they of course, they deal specifically with, they begin immediately with the genealogies leading to Jesus Christ, and then they go all the way to the return of Jesus Christ. And so they're the, they're the kind of, a lot of the old covenant revealed or further expounded on. There's Christ is all over the old covenant. I mean, he's everywhere. In the in the, all the animal sacrifices pointed to his sacrifice. So there's, there's all kinds of shadows, but these were the actual fulfillment of all that. So no, we don't. Ever since he took his last breath, I, the next animal sacrifice I think was sinful, and these these commands didn't have to be a, 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 a applied or obeyed anymore. The ones we're talking Why do you about. Why think that was? Well, you always ask me that. And I can only refer to say <laughs> you have to go to the Lord and ask Him for that. Why He did everything according to the way He did it. I just but if you, we didn't have, we wouldn't have a better way. His way is the right way. Yeah, well, there's a lot of whys and why suffering, why this, what could we have done something different? And the, what you always got to realize is that when you understand who God is, you 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 come to the complete conclusion that His way is the best way, even though it hurts. We don't understand. You don't, you don't need animal sacrifices anymore because Jesus sacrificed Himself. Yeah. That's the plan. Yeah, that's a good point. He the animal sacrifices didn't atone for anybody's sin. They pointed to. Christ, who was going to actually the actual atonement for Old Testament people and New Covenant people, were all made by Christ. Died for anybody who ever got saved from from Adam. We're assuming, and no reason not to assume, he was covered with animal skin when he sinned and fell and everything else. So he probably got saved real quick after he fell. But his sins were were paid for by Christ. And whoever is the last person to ever be saved in human history at the end of the tribulation, or or maybe even in the millennial kingdom. Christ died for their sins too. Yeah. So, so those animal sacrifices didn't do anything except point. They didn't. They did very clear in Hebrews. They didn't atone for any sin, and that's why I think in the old covenant, when somebody died, Abraham, they didn't go immediately to heaven. They were in the that Abraham's bosom. We talked about that two part place down, and then when Christ ascended, he took all the old covenant spirits with him up to be with 
in heaven with him. And now when somebody dies, they go immediately because the atoning work has been accomplished. The sins have actually been paid for. And our sins, of course, were paid for long before we were even born. So that's incredible. So yeah, the animals, all the old covenants, ceremonial. Stephanie and I are going through Ephesians and we're going through a section where it talks about how he abolished all of those, the, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile knocked down. There's no more difference now. There's no more, uh, within, in Christ, that is to say, if you got saved in the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile and you got saved, you had to join the nation of Israel and begin to participate in those ceremonial commands. Not to be saved, but because you were saved, but you, they were commanded. Now, Gentile has the, you have the exact same access to salvation as any Jew does through the gospel. The gospel is how people get saved now. But he, he tore down those walls. And so there's no more ceremonial, no more civil laws of the Old Covenant. Only the moral laws pass over. Go ahead, shoot. You said something just a few seconds ago about when you die, die your soul you know, goes up and joins. So when when the big guy comes, or the big act comes, big act. and he pulls everybody. The rapture? Yeah. Yes. Who, who's going then? Okay. Okay, when you, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. So if a Christian dies now, your spirit goes to be with Christ, but your body's here. We bury it. Right. It goes into so the ground. Just strictly body. Your spirit, yeah. But then at the rapture, if you're dead in Christ, your body will be will be connected to your spirit. He will do that somehow powerfully, and then yank you up. And if you're alive, then you don't die. You'll just be changed immediately into a glorified body. So you'll receive your glorified body. If you die before the rapture, which most people have, and most people will probably, then your spirit will be with Christ, and then you will be connected to your body at the rapture. Or if you're still alive when the rapture happens, then you'll just be immediately glorified. So, absent from the body, present from the Lord. And that's hard to exactly understand. So when your body goes, is it... All bones? What do you mean? No, he'll change it. Okay. He'll change it. And we talked about that one time about cremation and all those things where if, or if say you're a Christian and you die in, in 9-11 you just, your body is just, you can't even identify any of it. God knows where it's at. And I'm not saying he uses every single particle that's left. He just, he has enough. I mean, it is your body. He, I think he does take something of what is left, but he, of course he transforms it miraculously into a body that is suited for heaven. There's a big uh, description of it in one of the Corinthians about the, you know, fish have one kind of flesh, birds have another kind of flesh, and he's going to give us, because people are questioning, how can we live in heaven with the bodies we have? He's going to transform it into a sinless, glorified body where we can be in the presence of the Lord. So the reason we couldn't be, we would be in big, we'd be dead if, we, if God manifested himself. If he showed up in this room and manifested himself, we would all immediately, even as a Christian, because we still have sinful flesh, we would, wouldn't be able to survive it because his glory would just kill us. His holiness would just kill us. But when we have a glorified, sinless body, no more sin, we'll be able to be in the presence of the Lord for all, for all eternity and serve him perfectly. We won't get tired. I don't think we'll have to sleep. I don't know if we'll eat or not. There's a debate on that. I, there seems that Jesus ate after he was glorified or if he was resurrected. 
Now that's pre-ascension, so it's hard to know if if after that, and so we won't need to eat, obviously. Well, I don't think, but I think we're gonna have we're gonna be at the wedding supper of the lamb, and so I think there's gonna be eating. But how all that flushes itself out? Here's what I would say: I, the details, I don't know, but it'll be better than whatever we can think of. We'll have a clean, perfect, sinless soul, a clean, perfect, sinless body. There will be no disease. There will be no tearing. There will be or no crying. There will be no mourning over anything. You won't be sad about anything, and it will be eternal. And so that's what you think about when times are tough, is you think about that day. Because up until that day, we're not going to have days where you're not sad, and you're going to be struggling, and you're going to be mourning, and you're going to be pain, and you're going to be sick, and you're going to be all these things are the result of sin. But once we're glorified, we'll be sinless, totally, all the way around. And then we won't have any more problems. So yes, die now, spirit goes to be with the Lord, and I imagine that's wonderful. And then your body's still on the ground at the rapture. It's connected. No more questions. You receive your glorified body. Then. No, that's fine. Those questions are good. All right, so that explains, that's what that happens. That's, and then, of course, it, it does appear that they were not wealthy because there's an option there of, the, of sacrificing a lamb or two turtle doves. It appears here Mary and Joseph sacrificed two pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they did not appear to, Mary and Joseph appeared to be poor financially. Obviously, they had all a lot. They were the parents on a human level of the, yeah. Messiah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I imagine they didn't worry much. All right. Verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. What and, does that mean? What? The consolation of Israel. Um, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I would say the consolation the... Yeah, his note says it's a messianic title, but you know it's the I would look at the word and see console in it. That it's 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 the you know he's their Messiah, the Savior of of Israel, and yeah, you immediately know who this is talking about. You know we're talking about Israel again, we're talking about ethnic national Israel here. Um, so he was looking. So this Simeon, and I think Simeon is a priest. Doesn't say he's a priest, but as we read in Leviticus, where it says that they're they were, um, on the days of purification, they bring him to the priest at the doorway of the tent. So I think this is Simeon who, uh, who's doing this. And he was righteous and devout, which means he was saved and obedient. He was a saved person. Just because somebody, when the Bible speaks of, we've been through this many times where somebody's righteous, they're not saying they're inherently righteous. They're saying they're declared righteous, they're saved and devout. That means he's an obedient, saved person, not sinless by any means. But he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the reason, I think, there's lots of reasons. That you, why was he looking for the consolation? That is, he was paying attention at that time period because he was expecting something. And I think one of the reasons, if he, he obviously knew the scriptures, and if you go to Daniel 9, and it talks about the 70 weeks has been decreed for you and your people to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. And so this talks about the coming of Messiah, where it talks about verse 20, this is chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
And that was an actual de- decree. Until Messiah, the Prince, capital P, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so we've talked about that a couple times where the weeks, those are weeks of years. And so it added up to be about 483 years. And so if you knew when this decree to start rebuilding Jerusalem was, and most people think it was by Artaxerxes, then you could calculate, okay, it's been about that long. And so you begin to expect Messiah. Because it says very clearly that you are to know and discern so it's, call, it's calling for people to know and discern that the, from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah, there will be this amount of time. And so I think this, this these are just observant people here who are realizing, and then there's probably other places too that you could maybe draw to the conclusion that the Messiah was close. Different signs that I'm not thinking of right now, but I, I just thought of Daniel 9 that you could actually say, all right, well, if the, if the decree to rebuild Jerusalem happened at this time period, in this year, then we've got 483 years until the Messiah, and so this is getting close to that. Probably not exactly specifically, because I think the actual day I've heard that that 483 years wrapped up was the day he, Christ presented himself to Israel as their Messiah in these, you know, when he's on the, the white cult and they were chanting Hosanna, Hosanna. That was him, his final entrance into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And that was basically presenting himself as their Messiah. Of course, they rejected. He was, and that's what it says there is that after that, the Messiah will be cut off, verse 26, and have nothing. And so you see that's the death of Messiah. And so we're still waiting for that last week. Now, but there's no there's no real specific time period between you know there's no there's no way we can do math and say all right well we're getting we're getting close to the return of the Lord because this this and you know so many years have happened where they could they could do that from Daniel nine they could say okay it's been approximately this four hundred eighty something years we should be looking for the Messiah so that's probably one reason I think why he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And also the Holy Spirit was upon him. Back then the Holy Spirit didn't indwell. Obviously Simeon's a saved person. He's a priest. He's righteous and devout as we talked about. And the Spirit was upon him then. Okay, then I think when it's talking about the Spirit being upon him, that was at the moment that he was going to go in and see the Messiah, the infant Messiah. And then verse 26 it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so I, th- I think sometime in the past, I think that was a past thing that happened, that previously, before this situation, it had been revealed to Simeon that he was going to see the, the, the Messiah. And then funny, you see the, the Lord's Christ there, those two terms, because usually you think of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the Lord's Christ in the in its in the sense of the Father's Messiah. And um, but anyway, Simeon was told, supernaturally revealed by the Holy Spirit, who knows how, that he was it was probably just a prompting on his heart, and where he all of a sudden realized that he was going to see the Messiah before he died. And so he knew this. And so he I don't know how long that was. It doesn't say, but I don't think that that did not happen here at this situation. That happened before. 
And then at this situation, the Holy Spirit came upon him again and, and was like, okay, now's the time you're going to see what I had told you you were going to see before. Why is it important that he's seeing? What do you mean? This Simeon guy. Those why questions. We need, <laughs> we need to ban why questions. No, I mean... I, there, I mean, why is there this text about this guy? Well, every script, all scriptures God breathes, and so you just... You, well, they said he's only mentioned in this one time. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are only mentioned in one really? section. Yeah, it's just the way the Lord worked out history and and worked out uh, special blessings to people and then recorded it, and um, and so why certain people at certain times and and so he didn't have a purpose for him. Not necessarily. I mean, you can you can draw out um, lessons from from. Uh, I mean, you can look at Simeon and say, okay, well, he was righteous and devout, like we talked about. That means he was a he was declared righteous and he was obedient. But also the fact that he was looking means that he part of his obedience was he was paying attention to Scripture. So you could draw application from that, and then you can recognize how the Holy Spirit works. That that the Holy Spirit reveals to thing people things. I don't believe this was an audible thing to him. It might have been, but it was probably just a just all of a sudden he realized in his heart that he was going to see the Lord had revealed it to him, and then you can see how the Holy Spirit works when the time is appropriate for that action to be carried out. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and so you could always every every sentence of Scripture, if you just let it think, if you think about it and absorb it and compare it to other Scripture, there's always a purpose for the Scripture. Okay. That's where it's, I brought up that Scripture in Second Timothy, I think it's Second Timothy three sixteen, the one that everybody's got memorized or you've heard many times, that all Scripture is God breathed and profitable, and so every every Scripture is profitable, or it wouldn't be there. And so you're right. There's all there's importance to every scripture, even the even the genealogies, even the Levitical laws. All those things have there's a purpose for it. Now I do think it was some scripture you obviously have more um, progr- progress revelation, and so we know. I mean, like the epistles explaining who Jesus was and what he did are more they're progressive revelation they're farther along than the revelation they were given in the old testament those were shadows of christ and so now we have more fulfilled but i hate to always say more important verses because again jesus says himself that we are to feed on uh, not on bread alone but on every word that comes out of the mouth of god and so every word is valuable yet you have i think there is more scripture that's more uh I know I hate to use the word "no more important," so I'm not going to use it. But you know, you see what I'm saying? There's, yeah. You'll learn more from reading. You'll learn more about Jesus from reading the New Testament than you will the Old Testament because it's further right. revelation. More there are the mysteries we talk about in there's several of them in Ephesians where it talks about these what a mystery is in, in the Bible is not a is not means that it is some kind of a puzzle to solve or anything like that, like you'd say a mystery novel is, but it, a mystery is something that was previously concealed by God purposely. The information was in his mind, obviously, eternally, but he waited to reveal it for his own purpose later on. And so now we do have mysteries that were previously concealed, and now they are revealed in New Covenant, in Christ, in the epistles. And so, you know, if you're a Christian, you want to, I think you want to spend most of your time reading 
I always say to people that if you become a new Christian, if you get into Romans and the epistles, that's probably where I would start, and obviously the Gospels. But even the Gospels are not as progressive as the epistles are, because the epistles explain his life and the meaning of his life and the meaning of his his death and atoning work in ways that the that the, the Gospels don't. They're narratives about what happened, and then the epistles are more explaining the details of the meaning of what happened. And so if you want the most revel, and of course the book of Revelation explains the end, the stuff that hadn't happened yet, and how that's going to take place. And so, But again, you can open up Leviticus chapter 12 or Leviticus chapter 2, and if you put your heart towards gaining some knowledge of, of God and His Word, you'll gain knowledge of God and His Word there. So, all right. But we ban why questions from this point on. But so, but so this was the point when the Holy Spirit came upon him again. I think the, the, the revelation that he was going to see the Lord's Christ was some other time in the past. And now it came upon him again and said, okay, now's that time. And so in verse 27, he came in the, he, and he came in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was upon him and led him into um, where they were at. It's probably um, that place where the you know, what we went through in Leviticus, um, what was supposed to happen here. And so he came in the Spirit in the, into the temple, and when the parents brought, the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, what we just read, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. So I think this, this is where he is, the priest of the Levitical laws that we talked about in verses um, 12 6 and so this is probably at the doorway of the tent where all these things were supposed to happen and so he took him into his arms and he said now lord you are releasing your bond ceremony so he's in the spirit a lot of the, whenever we have these speeches by elizabeth zacharias mary where they were filled be filled with the holy spirit that's what happened to simeon here he was in the spirit and he says now lord you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so that was his spirit-inspired, and whenever the spirit comes upon somebody and they begin to speak, it's all about praising the Lord. So he's thanking the Lord. I mean, this was a special gift given to Simeon to be able to be, to 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 see the Savior and to hold the Savior in his arms and to know in advance that this was going to happen. So now he says, all right, this has happened to me. Now you can go ahead and I can die now. Because he said, and he probably did die pretty soon after that because the Holy Spirit revealed to him that before he would die, he, before he, that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he was probably pretty old. And um, so now he says, you can, you can release your bondservant because I have seen what you're promised. And that's another lesson. When when the Holy Spirit, if the if the Holy Spirit actually reveals something to you, it will happen. There, there's no chance of it not happening. It's just the timing of it. And so he, he says, "His eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples." And again, we talked about he is he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And when we get a little bit farther on, it talks about you know redemption of Jerusalem. So there is a there is an ethnic Israel aspect to salvation 
that will happen to the nation of Israel at the end of time. But also, obviously, it's predicted and prophesied many times in the Old Testament about how salvation will go to the Gentiles. And that's what you see there with for a presence of all peoples. He has prepared salvation in the presence of all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. So you see the distinguishing there, though, in verse 32. The whole world, he's only one, there's only one Savior. He's the Savior of the whole world. In verse 32, it talks about revelation to the Gentiles and then in glory to your people, Israel. So there's always the whole world, but there's always that distinction between ethnic Israel and the rest of the world. And salvation is always to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so while there's no... We've talked about this many, many, many times. You're born a Jew, it doesn't save you. You have to come to faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, most of the Jew, ethnic Jews died in sin and, and were, went to judgment. So you didn't get saved by being ethnically Jewish. Yet, there is a certainly a covenantal love that God has made with the nation of Israel and only with the nation of Israel. And if you did what was pleasing to the Lord, you were okay. What? If you did what was pleasing to the Lord. If you, you believed were... in his Messiah, if you if you if you believed and trusted in the atoning work to come, then yes. But if you were prideful, most of the Jews were prideful probably, and they were self righteous and the same sense that we struggle with. That's what, of course what why they re, that's why he was the stumbling stone to them. There's their the stumbling, the reason they stumbled is they were self-righteous. They wanted, they wanted, they loved their, their sin of pride. Religion is rooted in the sin of pride. False religion is rooted in the sin of pride. You want to think that you're right with God because of your own inherent righteousness. But there's two problems there. You don't know your sinfulness. It's like we talked about with those purification rituals. They demonstrate you don't know your sinfulness and you don't know God's holiness if you think you're right with God based upon who you are. Because you are so far from His holiness that it's not even measurable. And I think that's what repentance is. Repentance is that moment when God demonstrates to you His holiness in a way that doesn't kill you and shows you, exposes you to your sin. And we talked about many times anybody who came into the presence of the Lord in the scriptures did not rejoice. They fell on their face because they realized that their sin, their, they exposed their sin. And so, but anyway, back to the Israel, the reason they, in their, an application of that is anybody who's in any false religion who's self-righteous is, is in love with their sin of pride. But he is the savior of the whole world. Anybody who will ever be saved will be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. And the gospel now goes indiscriminately. When, when he first came, he told the apostles not to go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of Israel. So the first outreach of Christ's ministry was to the Jews, always to the Jew first. Of course, when they rejected, there was a point when it got turned. He probably got turned in his life. It seemed like he... You know, he began to withdraw himself from the national Jews and just started focusing on the disciples and training them for their mission to come. And of course, in the book of Acts, that gets fully fleshed out to the gospel ghosts. Even in the book of Acts, that first those first couple sermons were to Israel. And a lot of it, those first 
saved people in the book of Acts were Jews. They got they were they became Jewish Christians. But then eventually in the book of Acts it starts to turn away from proclamation of the gospel to the Jews to the Gentiles. The Paul, apostle Paul comes along the minister the apostle to the Gentiles and he starts taking the gospel to the Gentile nations. And now Israel is under a partial partial hardening, a, a majority partial hardening, in my opinion. They say very few Jews being saved now, but there are still a few. But mostly they're under hardening still to this day until the end of until the end of the tribulation period when that hardening is over, and all Israel gets saved, all the believing, all the surviving remnant all come to faith at the same time, and then. Christ returns to save them. All right. Let's see here. How long have we been going here? Oh, we got a little bit longer. Any questions, comments? Any more why questions? How come? How come? Yeah, why did that happen? I'm sorry. Uh, what reason did that happen? All right. But, um,. I know I do that too much. No, that's how you learn. You know, just ask. There's no such thing as a dumb question. This is really dumb. All right, verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Sounds kind of familiar to the end of when the shepherds came to him in verse 20 and says, um, or 19, but Mary treasured all these things and pondering them in her heart. So she's, I mean, she's, the angel talks to her. She's experienced the birth of Christ. The shepherds have come and testified things to her, and now Simeon does this, and, and of course Elizabeth did her spirit-inspired speech. And so Mary is hearing all these things, and it's just, can you imagine what a ride they were on? Maybe this is why he came. There you go. That's the reason you got this it. This is why what? This is why Simeon did it. That's right, see? You figured it out. But just think about what a ride they were on. I mean, it's every... I mean, these things being told about your child, of course, they understand that he's, he's, he's God incarnate. But on a human level, he's their baby. Yeah. That's crazy. Can you, I mean, can you imagine? Like I said, you, uh, it, they had a hard life. We, you know, where he was born and how they were raised, it appeared to be no special privileges on a human level. But still, you had to always think, all right, in the next room is the Lord incarnate. I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, things are going to be looking up. He's going to be, he's not, he, I think we'll be okay. You know, I always think about Jesus having, you know, half brothers and half sisters. Had a, had at least one sister. Like, can you imagine somebody, tra- you know, coming along to date her? You know, having the, <laughs> your big brother is the Lord Almighty. Might want to treat her nice. <laughs> All right, and so and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, "Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed." And his sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. All right. So it wasn't all good news. And so they were amazed about the things. So there's praise and things going on. But then there's some bad news that gets prophesied. That, of course, Christ is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. So you you can kind of see here. So he's looking for the consolation of Israel, 
But then you then you see him testifying that this is for the fall and rise of many of it in Israel. So you can see here a rege the rejection of Israel prophesied about. Um, and so the national rejection of of Messiah, especially in particular where it says, and for a sign to be opposed. You, so you see him, he, it's, you can see the that Christ will be opposed in Israel. And he'll be the rise and fall of many. There were many, many early on when John started preaching repentance, there were many that that got saved and prepared themselves for the coming of Messiah. And then it appears through Christ's ministry, there weren't a whole lot of people that got saved, sadly. A lot of people followed him, but most people that followed him followed him for either a healing or food. They didn't follow him for the forgiveness of sins. And when he started turning around and telling him what it cost, telling these these crowds that were wanting more food, what it cost, what it would mean to be a disciple, about self denial and picking up your cross and following him, and 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 you'd you'd have to hate your parents and your children by comparison to him, and even your own self, then guess what? The message, the tough message of the gospel, you know, if you're, if you're not a true believer, that'll turn you away in a heartbeat. Same thing with Judas. He was there for, the, for all the benefits of being around the Messiah, but as soon as it started, he started talking about his death coming, and he realized that this wasn't going into the kingdom like he, or some kind of a beneficial kingdom that he was going to profit from, that's when he immediately decided to sell out Jesus. That's how it works. Some people, a lot of people attach themselves to Jesus for the wrong motive. And if it's not because you realize that you are a wretched sinner in need of forgiveness more than anything in the world and that you're humble and repentant and on your face to God because you know you, have, you deserve eternal wrath, if you haven't come for the forgiveness of sins, then you're not a Christian. If you come to him because somebody said it's well, you you can get healed, or because he'll he'll fix your marriage, or will help you with your bad habits, or whatever. Any other reason other than the forgiveness of sins is not conversion. It's not salvation. And so anybody who hears this, if they if you think you're a Christian and you're not a humble, broken over your sin, and it's all about the forgiveness of sins, that's the conversion. Now the benefits of salvation, yeah, you can talk about those. God, Christ and God through His Spirit, they do clean up your life. They do help you turn up your, or clean, you know, clean up your sin. And if you've got a lot of bad habitual habits, He will help you to quit those. But that's not why you come to Christ. You come because you're broken over your sin, because you hate your sin. And I think that's what repentance is. But these people, a lot of people in Israel, rejected Him, and obviously nationally, the leadership of of the Jewish nation rejected him and had him put to death. They were the ones that turned him over and begged. I mean, you remember Pilate was doing everything in his possible power to get him released because he knew something was wrong here. He knew the guy was in knew Jesus was innocent. And on top of that, his wife was having visions and there's all kinds of things going on where he knew this was not a righteous thing to do, but he, he got overwhelmed by his sin of being fearful for his own life and his own job. But the Jews were the ones that pleaded and begged for Christ to be crucified because he threatened their their false religious system they had set up the false Judaism that was it that was in the uh, that was what was happening back then 
And then it says to her, a sword will pierce even your own soul. Talking to Mary. To the end, well, the, that she, Mary, was one of the, all the apostles bailed on Jesus when he got arrested. You know, they all ran for the hills. And this is where we talk about women pastors and stuff. You can take pride in the women stuck with him. Mm -hmm. Mary and the other, and there was several women there, but her, his, Jesus' mother Mary saw him get crucified. Can you imagine the pain that would cause? Of all this joy and everything, of the life of a perfect son and everything, all the experiences she's having, but she also stuck with him and watched that. And that was, I think, the sword that pierced her own heart. And this is pretty told to her this was going to happen. And so she can have a lot of joy what's going on, but she also knows that there's tough times coming. And I think that's a lot of the tough stuff with Israel back then and the, and the apostles struggle with that where you know you're in the presence of the God-man. You know he has the power to do anything, and yet he starts talking about his death and, all the, and you're being persecuted. Nobody's coming to faith in him. Everybody's trying to kill him. So you're trying to balance this into, okay, how does this work out? And you're... Even though the Old Testament prophesies these things, in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, about the suffering servant, Psalm 2, you still, experiencing it, you can understand how you'd be like, okay, I've got the God-man sitting right here. <laughs> how are we going to be, how, how does he die? How does God die? You know, you're trying to figure all this out. That's why the epistles explain a lot of this. His human nature, God didn't die. His divine nature didn't die. His human nature was the finishing aspect of the atonement. The atonement is this. He, when he was hanging on the cross and those three hours of darkness came over, the Father poured out his wrath. The, the wrath of God came upon Christ for the sins of the elect. And then, when that was all exhausted, that wrath had been fully exhausted on the, on, for the wrath of the elect, all of their sins, past, present, and future, then Christ voluntarily gave up his human nature. He died. He didn't, he, nobody killed him. He gave up his life on his own. Nobody took his life from him, he said. He gave up his own life. So not only did he voluntarily allow himself to be put on the cross, he died when he wanted to die. He did not get killed. He died according to his will. But that was only after he had uttered those famous last three words, it is finished. He had taken, he lived the perfect life, and he had taken the wrath that was due for us. And then when he did that, he took his last breath. And then then, what we talked about, there's, he, he had ratified the new covenant. He had paid the sin debt. Everything else was nullified immediately. Um, so that's a glorious thing to think about. But to the end, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And I like John's note on this. The rejection of the Messiah would reveal the appalling truth about the apostate state of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the hearts of the Pharisees and the hearts of the leadership were revealed in the way they reacted and responded and killed their Messiah. And we'll close on this one last scripture I got written down here. Um, oh, yeah, this is Jesus talking. We'll get to this eventually, some year. In Luke, Luke 6... 45, the good man out of the tr good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And so you see, sin always starts in the heart. Any sin starts in the heart. You don't just kill somebody. It starts with hatred. You don't just 
commit adultery, it starts with lust. It all, all sin starts in the heart. And so you see here that the demonstration of this is kind of a just kind of another way to say what Jesus said in John six or Luke six forty five that the hearts of the the especially the religious national leaders of Israel were revealed by the way they responded to the Messiah, which was to reject him and to have him. And they remember he they've tried to have him when we were in John. They tried to start killing him early. <laughs> what, oh, yeah. The only reason Christ would protect himself supernaturally because it wasn't time yet. But they started, They wanted to kill him very soon. It seems like as soon as he started working on the Sabbath and doing these things that they had set up all these, these religious, self-righteous activities that they loved so much, that when he went after anything like that, when he started talking about how simple they were, well, guess what? Time for him to die. We we wanted a political, military Messiah. We don't want somebody telling us the truth about our sin. And that's how it is. And that's how it still is for them. You hear them talk about Jesus. Oh, I, know. I watched another YouTube video last night about they've got this new Sanhedrin built up over there now. And they're, they've got this altar built that they want to put in the third temple when it gets built. And they're sacrificing. I don't know what they sacrifice on it. But then they would interview these people. And here's what the guy said who was leading it. Of course, I don't think this is official, but he calls himself the leader of the new Sanhedrin. He says, he's talking about they're trying to bring the Messiah. But he says, it's not Jesus. This is what he said. He said, I would, we would rather go back to Auschwitz than to believe that Jesus is our Messiah. They'd rather go back to Hitler and get cooked again than to accept him. I mean, that's their utter disdain for him. And he is their Messiah. But they, yeah, it's like I said, it's amazing. to. to so you think of Jews and you, you know, a lot of this, especially the political environment you think of, Judeo-Christian, you try to, try to connect that. But they hate Christ. They hate him more than, gen, more than just the heathen does because they're, they're still love their pride. They love their, and they talk about Gentiles in condescending ways. You know, there's all about that. We're the special people. We're the, see, on our human level, you can understand why people don't like Jews in some ways. They've got an arrogance to them. Yet, we want to defend them in a sense as well because they are God's chosen nation. So you got that balance there. As in Romans 11, you know, according to the gospel, they're our enemies, but according to the God's election, they are his nation, so we never want, you know, when he said to Abraham, those who bless you are all blessed, those who curse you are all cursed, and so you got to respect and revere that, yet on a human level, man, you listen to them talk about Christ, they hate him more than just about anybody on the planet, and they will, I think all the way through the tribulation period, they'll hate him, they'll hate him, and most of them will die in their sin, and then God will have mercy upon a on a believing one third of whatever starts the tribulation period, one third will survive, and he will he will grant them finally by his grace they will accept and believe in him. That'll be a day. But up until then, they hate him more than most people. They hate him. And you go to you last place if you want to go and, and get stuff thrown at you, <laughs> preaching the gospel, go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You'd think the place where he was and lived and everything else, you at least have some affinity there. But most of the time, if you preach the gospel over there, not, they're not just going to ignore you. They're going to come after you. Over here, you preach the gospel, you probably got some rude people every now and then, but most people are just so in love with the world that they, don't, they just ignore you. 
All right, well, we'll stop it there. Praise the Lord, and we'll go next time. Verse 36. Thank you for joining us, and until next time.